In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Religious Life Sunday, a Sunday where around the Episcopal Church, conversations are being focused on communities and individuals who are committed to religious life. Religious life. It's kind of a funny phrase. What does it even mean? What type of life do you lead, I'm asked. Well, I lead a religious one. As if to say that I lead a special kind of life different from a priest or a plumber or a school teacher or a coach. Which is true, but it also seems to say that the priest or plumber, school teacher or coach is not religiously focused or religiously minded. So what do we mean when we say religious life? Every faith tradition has had individuals who have felt the desire to live out their beliefs in a more intentional and focused way than the society around them. At the same time Christianity became the recognized religion of the Roman Empire, men and women began to go into the desert feeling that the Christianity that Rome had sanctioned was too domesticated and watered down. So they separated themselves from the world they knew to embrace fully the faith that called out to them. This fleeing into the desert is what we consider to be the beginning of monastic life or religious life in the Christian tradition. Our gospel story this morning opens in a similar way. John the Baptist had been arrested by the authorities. This comes right after John had baptized Jesus and the Spirit of God descended and a voice proclaimed that Jesus was God's Son and in whom God was well pleased. This statement about John's arrest also comes directly after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Upon hearing the news, Jesus leaves his hometown of Nazareth and makes his way to Capernaum. Once there, it seems as though Jesus takes up where John the Baptist had left off. Other than baptizing, John preached to crowds. His message of prepare the way of the Lord had been heard by anyone near enough to hear. Jesus, once in Capernaum, begins to preach as well a similar message. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. Both Jesus and John, and even the early desert fathers and mothers, all had something in common. They moved to a place where they could physically live out their own vocations. John moved to the wilderness by the river. The desert mothers and fathers left the cities and relocated to caves in the Egyptian desert. Jesus moved to Capernaum by the sea, away from home and away from the officials who had locked up John as a political prisoner. And there, he began to preach. It's only natural that when we find ourselves around like-minded people, community has a chance to happen. As more and more individuals fled to the desert, groups began to form often around certain holy men and women. One such group formed around St. Benedict. The small group asked if Benedict could help structure their fledgling community. 
And after a time, they thought Benedict's rules were too strict and eventually tried to poison him, only proving that community, fledgling or not, is difficult. It would take several other places and attempts until Benedict was able to establish a community he could call his own. Similarly, St. Francis's biographers make it sound as though the community around Francis was a complete accident. In one place, the author records that Francis said, and then the Lord gave me brothers, as if they just sort of appeared out of nowhere. By the time Francis would be canonized in 1228, that accidental community would expand to be over 800 self-professed followers of Francis. Jesus, on the other hand, did something quite different. Walking down by the sea, he noticed some fishermen, and he approached them as they worked, hauling their nets. Follow me, he said to these strangers. And they did. These working class men left their livelihood, their families, their whole world, and followed a man who had just recently moved to the neighborhood. We aren't given the details of the conversation, if there was one at all. <coughs> Excuse me. Or any reason as to why someone would ever leave everything behind and walk blindly into a life they know nothing about. But they did. Just like the desert mothers and fathers would be centuries later. Just like I did six years ago. And you're right, it doesn't make any logical sense because logic has very little to do with it. In Thomas Merton's biography, Seven Story Mountain, he writes of an exchange he had with his friend and a poet, Robert Lacks. Merton writes, What do you want to be anyway? Lacks asked. I don't know. I guess I want to be a good Catholic, I said. What do you mean you want to be a good Catholic? The expectation I gave was lame enough and expressed my confusion and betrayed how little I had really thought about it at all. Lax did not accept it. What you should say, he told me, what you should say is that you want to be a saint. A saint, the thought struck me as a little weird, and I said, how do you expect me to become a saint? By wanting to, said Lax simply. This is a theme that Merton will, pick, will come back to time and time again. He would later write, for me to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. He would also write, For the saint preaches sermons by the way he walks, the way he stands, the way he sits down, and the way he picks things up and holds them in his hand. If this is true, that the way we become holy is by being our authentic selves, then what made Francis and Benedict, those desert mothers and fathers, those first disciples Jesus called, and even Jesus himself holy, was that they did what they needed to do in order to move closer to who they were called to be. And in their case, it meant leaving part of the world they knew behind. 
My mentor, who is a Roman Catholic monk, told me once that everyone has two important questions to answer. The first is how they will answer the call of their own vocations. The second is how they will fill the hours of their day. You see, I could be called to help lift up the voices of marginalized individuals and may be hard-pressed to figure out how to do that and still pay my bills. Sometimes what we are called to, that thing that gives us purpose and drive and answers our deepest God-given desires, isn't the way that fills the majority of our time or fulfills our practical needs. But that doesn't make our vocations any less important or that we are ignoring them at all. And even though vowed religious commit their lives to live a way that offers space to focus on our vocations, doesn't mean that we still fill all of our hours with what fills our deepest desires. I'm awake on average 16 hours a day and spend approximately three hours of that time in prayer. That leaves 13 other hours. These remaining hours I fill with errands, cooking, ministry, meetings, homework, eating, walking, procrastinating, laundry, just like everyone else. So what do you do? This is the number one question as a vowed religious that I am asked when I meet someone new. It's also the most difficult question to answer. We are in a culture that is so focused on doing that the in-between times, those hours between ministry or projects and prayer, is hard to understand. The whole gospel story this morning focuses on these in-between times, between the temptation in the desert and the Sermon on the Mount that the gospel author will tell in the next chapter. The in-between time when Jesus is moving to Capernaum and the calling of the first disciples. The time between the disciples putting down their nets and following Jesus into his ministry. Can you imagine asking the disciples, so what do you do all day? Well, we sit and listen mostly. There's a lot of walking, thinking about my family back home. There are so many people gathering around Jesus all the time. We do crowd control mostly. We find food. We try to figure out what Jesus is even talking about. Do any of these statements sound like the responses of people we would deem successful? But these are the saints we admire who followed their own calls. So what do I do all day? In short, I listen to people. As a spiritual director, as I train to be a therapist, as I facilitate classes and retreats and discussions, I listen. I spend the majority of my waking hours focused on the stories and concerns of others. If that is holy work, it's only because it's the work I've been called to do. And if by doing that work I will be remembered as a saint, it's because it is me trying to be true to who I am, just as being a Franciscan is me moving closer to being myself. Being a Franciscan offers me the space, the time, and the framework to focus on the listening that I do. 
One isn't separate from the other. Being a Franciscan and offering space to listen to individuals are both necessary elements if I'm to live into who I am created to be. For me to live my religious life. As the poet Mary Oliver asked at the end of her poem, The Summer Day, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? My answer? Sit and listen. Jesus' answer was to move to Capernaum. Francis left his family and Peter put down his net. Thomas Merton picked up his pen. And every single person in religious life will have a similar answer. In reality, Religious Life Sunday is to draw attention to the individuals who chose to live out their callings in a certain way. Our way is not any more important or any more holy than yours. It just looks different. And it's the type of different that we needed to begin the long journey toward ourselves and the God who loves us. So what about you? What do you do? What do you need to live into who you are and who you were created to be? What do you need to live out your religious life? Because really that's the most important question. So I'll leave you with this. Upon his deathbed, St. Francis said, I have done what is mine to do. May Christ show you what is yours. Amen.